This podcast was recorded on January 11th, 2018. The views and opinions expressed herein are of the date recorded and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities. Such views and opinions may differ from those of DoubleLine Capital or its affiliates and are subject to change without notice. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. All right, welcome to the Sherman Show. I'm here today with my co-host, Sam Lau. Hey, hey. And this is episode three of 2018, and we have a special guest with us today. His name is Bill Harding. Uh, he's a senior vice president at Jackson and chief investment officer, you know, don't forget the big titles there too, at Jackson National Asset Management. And uh, we're going to talk today about his experience in the insurance space and what he does over at Jackson. So welcome to the Sherman Show. Great. Bill. Thanks for having me here. Yeah. So thanks for making a trek out to Los Angeles and squeezing us in. Um, so a lot of people aren't familiar uh, with what goes on in the insurance business, except that, you know, we have to buy it, right? We have to have insurance for our house, for our cars and things. Uh, people don't think about insurance when it comes to financial products. A lot of people we run across. And so uh, maybe you can give uh, a short introduction on uh, what, what kind of insurance products are in the financial world. And then uh, we'll talk a little bit deeper about how you got into that side of the business. Yeah, sure. So Jackson National, um, our primary business is in the variable annuity markets. We also have some products and fixed annuities and some legacy life insurance business, but primarily the driving force of the business is variable annuities. And variable annuities are really avenue for retirement savings. They allow individuals to enjoy a stream of income that's guaranteed for life. So Jackson looks at this product, the variable annuity, as being integral to individuals being able to support their lifestyle in retirements. So really the variable annuity is structured as an underlying collective investment vehicle with an insurance wrapper around it to provide individuals with those guarantees for income. Okay, so we can think of it as, as a way of investing, but investing to try to smooth out kind of the withdrawal path, you know, versus right. thinking about someone having to manage that kind of income stream, their liability stream themselves. Is that right. fair? Yeah, that's fair. It's yeah. definitely a product that is geared towards the distribution phase of life to make sure, again, you can draw down that income and and live comfortably and have the retirement that you want and feel comfortable with that with the guarantees on top of it. Okay. So when you were growing up as a kid, you know, as you're talking about what you want to be, did you always want to be in the insurance always business? had a love for variable annuities and insurance. Uh, no, not at all. I probably uh, did not uh, even know much about variable annuities until I started at Jackson you know, five years ago. So my path was a little bit probably different. Grew up uh, Long Island, uh, New York went to school out in Boulder, Colorado, partly probably for the skiing. And I uh, started off in actually as a computer science major. That didn't, wasn't my cup of tea. So I switched over to business and uh, had a focus on finance. And my first job out of school is also, you know, kind of interesting. I'm probably the only guest you're going to have on the Sherman show. It's got a background in the cheese industry. Nice. Uh, <laughs> I, I saw, I saw loud just uh, peek up. Wisconsin style right here, man. Yeah, well, this is more of a mozzarella cheese, or as the New Yorkers like to say, mozzarella. So yeah, first job out of school was with a private company called Leprino Foods Company. So privately owned, 
company that produced mozzarella cheese, but the key thing was, and their main competitive advantage is they were a low-cost producer, uh, had scale, and was the primary you know, provider for major pizza chains, Pizza Hut, Domino's, Papa John's, et cetera. So again, I didn't go into that role looking to get into the cheese business. It was more general financial analyst type of role. But through that position, I did different things at the company, one of which was analyzing investments in the company's 401k and profit sharing plans. So that's when I got introduced more to investing. And and in particular, during that time period, one of the resources that we used to do our research was Morningstar. Back in the day, they had this Morningstar binder, which was their print publication, and then started to put out the Morningstar Principia software, CD-ROMs for kids out there may not know what those are. But it was always exciting. Every month or every quarter, we got the new CD-ROM and you can update your data. Yeah, I I actually remember that when I first started working to getting all those uh, investment databases via the ROM because the internet was still slow, right? Even at your corporate email, I mean, Mm -hmm. it was tough to have any attachments or anything in that. It was really just primarily text Mm -hmm. at the time. Were there any perquisites that came with this cheese job? I'm still going to rewind a little bit. Did you get any, like, you know, at the holiday season, they distribute out any we cheese did. packages? Yeah, we did get, as a, as a holiday bonus, a container of cheese. And yeah. yeah, so I can make all the pizzas I want at home. Right, and it's just the, the mozzarella, as you said? Is just, that all? Just the mozzarella. Yeah. But, uh, See, I don't good. have the accent right. No, you don't have it okay. at all. Okay, just fair make enough. some good chicken parm. <laughs> okay, so you're, you're getting introduced to Morningstar. Talking about loading CD-ROMs, so the kids at home, too. These are uh, before Blu-rays, before DVDs. There were these things called CDs. That's how we actually used to listen mm-hmm. to music, too. But it, besides dating ourselves, Bill, what did you glean from this Morningstar analysis? Yeah, so I think I just kind of got more interested in the you know investment research part of the role I had at that time. And I mean, in particular, was interested in the way Morningstar looked at the world and their focus on independent research and started reading more about investments and Again, a lot of the investors that were well thought of through Morningstar and their research and, you know, reading about Warren Buffett and just kind of a lot of the great investors back in the day and learning more about that. So to me, it was just more I've got interested in that part of the business, interested in analyzing separate accounts and mutual funds. And what I liked about that was that um, you could look under the hood and analyze the underlying investments as well. So you're trying to talk to the manager or understand how they're putting together a portfolio, but also need to have some understanding of the online investment vehicles as well. Right. So what does the due diligence process entail? So take me through when you're starting to look at this thing. Obviously, everybody thinks very highly of Mr. Buffett and uh, the way he thinks about companies and understanding what you own, right? Mm -hmm. The principles he set forth. When you're starting to think about identifying these managers, you're talking about managers or strategies, you know, kind of what's the core thinking around the due diligence, at least at this stage in your career? Yeah, so here at Jackson, uh, we're, our due diligence process is really described by an acronym, what we refer to as the PROOF process, which stands for performance, repeatability, operational oversight, ongoing monitoring, and fit. So everything we do kind of starts with that PROOF process. And I think the key for us is the repeatability aspect to it. So that's where, much like you know Warren Buffett popularized the concept of economic modes to describe a company's competitive advantage. At the end of the day, when we're analyzing managers and strategies, the first thing on, on my mind and the mind of my analyst is what is the competitive edge? What is the advantage that this manager or this organization possess or this particular strategy? So that really comes in with the you know, repeatability and the deep dive and uh, research that we do on our managers, our qualitative research, 
going out, doing manager interviews, on-site meetings, kicking the tires, et cetera, but also supplementing that with, you know, thorough, you know, quantitative analysis, you know, digging into the numbers and trying to understand those. Yeah. So it's a qualitative slash quantitative approach Mm -hmm. too, right? You talk about repeatability, thinking about that. How do you identify that? You know, from a quant perspective, you think, is it just all luck? Someone's come there. What gets you to buy into that repeatability process? Yeah, I think that's probably the hardest part of the job is you can look at strategies and managers that have had a good past track record and maybe think that they have some skill. But the key there is to understand whether there was an edge or what was in play in terms of factors that led to that performance that can be repeated or were they just lucky at the right place, right time, got a couple of big stock picks, right, that fueled some returns in certain years. So I think there's some things that over the course of our experience, you know, I've been in the business 20 years and obviously have interviewed and met with hundreds, if not thousands of managers and colleagues on my team as well. So you, you learn along the way of what things to look for and what things to avoid so I think for us, everything probably starts with the people, especially when we're focusing it on actively managed strategies. It's very important that you have a good, stable team in place and as well as an organization. So there are key factors that we look at that we grade our managers on across the organization, the people, and their investment process. I can certainly get into kind of details if you want to go you know, further down. Lau, Lau's already kind of fallen over a little bit there at his mic. So maybe we could talk about, uh, to spice it up, what are the red flags you see when you say, oh, we should stay away from this type of manager and this type of strategy manager, whatever that may be? Yeah, so I think a lot of the red flags that have come up you know, tend to be revolving around the I'd say the structure of the organization, stability of it. So in cases where we've had to fire managers in the past or ones that we avoided, you know, a lot of times it's the organization structure, it's the incentive alignment. You don't have confidence that the maybe they have the right structure in place or the right compensation in place to retain and retract top talent. And that tends to lead to turnover. I mean also, you know, we are very wary of times where you have you know, organization changes and we want to understand who the underlying owners of the business are. I think there's some structures that just inherently are somewhat better and more conducive to having a successful organization with low turnover and others that you tend to see more problems with. Yeah. Well, that makes a lot of sense. As we talk about your due diligence and things that you're talking about active management, do you guys think of any sort of part of the business where there should be more of this passive, we had this whole active passive debate in the marketplace and can managers really add value? And, you know, obviously we believe in that, that there's the ability to do so. I, th- I think you do given your role, but where do you kind of shake out in this active passive debate? Well, Jackson, we have a very robust platform of variable annuity options and we have, you know, both sides covered. We have a broad array of passive investment vehicles from, you know, the broad equity and fixed income indices, as well as sectors, as well as what we might define as strategic beta or as well. So we want to have a robust platform to give the advisors that work with us the option to select what they think is best for their end client. But obviously, given my role in the background, we also do think that we can be successful in identifying those active managers that have a better chance of succeeding in the future. And so far, you know, based on our results, I think we've done a reasonably good job of that. But at the end of the day, I think passive works for a lot of people because they don't have the resources and the ability to do the analysis on the underlying active managers to identify those ahead of time. And then more importantly, 
either stick with them during periods of underperformance or make changes when they're necessary. I think a lot of times performance doesn't persist because you know things changed at organizations or teams that cause maybe again that repeatability to not continue in the future. Yeah. So we keep talking about this annuity platform. Who's the target audience for this? Like, who who are your end investors? Because you're talking about people staying the course. Are these are these your do-it-yourself folks? Are they doing it through advisors? Um, what, what is kind of the targeted clientele for annuity product? Actually, right. I would add to that question too, is if you can differentiate between annuity and variable annuities in the platform as well for the uh, type of investors. Yeah. So um, in variable annuities would be investments that the individual is invested in underlying what we call sub-account, which is structured in a lot of ways like a mutual fund, and it could be invested in all different strategies and asset classes. And then again, it's structured as a variable annuity. It has some tax deferral advantages as well as potential for guarantees and other benefits on top of it. It's called variable in a way because the underlying account value can change with the value of the underlying sub-account that they're invested in and so forth, but they still can have a guarantee on, on the income stream in retirement. So our typical client would be an individual saving for retirement, looking for a solution for distribution. Uh, everything that Jackson does today is working through financial advisors. And what has changed a little bit in the industry, specifically for Jackson, is that traditionally most of the business has gone through the commission-based advisors. We are recently launched some new products that are focused more on the fee-based advisor. And I think this is going to be a trend going forward in the future. Again, it's consistent with what we're seeing in the industry as well as more of a shift from commission-based to fee-based. So now we have multiple versions of our variable annuity products that can either be for commission-based advisors versus those that are running a kind of a fee-based model. Yeah. So you mentioned this commission-based, fee-based. You're heavy on the jargon today. So um, remember, the Sherman Show audience doesn't have this experience inside of the insurance side. So what does that mean? Commission-based, fee-based? Why is there a big difference? Why do you believe the industry is moving towards what you said, fee-based? What are some of the kind of pitfalls of those different structures? Yeah, so the commission base is your front load structure where a client is paying for advice through front-end sales charge. So maybe it's 5%, 6%, similar to an A-share class of a mutual fund. So they're basically getting the services of their financial advisor through paying an upfront one-time commission fee, if you will. The fee-based model is one in which the advisor is not, not charging that higher front-end sales charge, but instead you know, charging the client on an annual basis, some amount of basis points, or you know, typically you know, a common percent would be around 1% or so for ongoing advice. So again, we traditionally have been working with advisors that are only kind of commission-based, but again, with I think some of the trends in the industry, particularly what we've seen with the DOL regulation, uh, we're seeing a shift for from broker dealers and financial advisory firms to try to move more of their business to a fee-based model from that commission-based model. Okay, so it's trying to align the interest of the advisor with the end client as well, and uh, again, trying to keep maybe more stability in that product lineup versus trying to turn or, or flip over different products just to generate some form of commission. Right, I think that's always a perhaps negative connotations or, or misperceptions about the churning yeah. of, of the commission. And it's not, I wouldn't say every you know advisor that's selling kind of a front-end commission business is doing that churning. Right. Obviously, if they want to get paid again in, in the future, they might make some changes. But in a lot of ways, you know, that commission front-end charge can be you know, fine for the client if it's a smaller asset base. It could be economical for them in, in terms of 
they're just going to buy and hold too, right? Right. Yeah. yeah. Right. So You're going to buy and hold. If you if buy and hold it, that, that commission over time off. is not, yeah, not necessarily a worse model, but I think it's kind of been perceived in the industry as not being maybe as friendly to the end client. And that's why in the DOL and you've, you've seen some of the regulations and some of the uh, focus on that. Yeah. So the DOL is the Department of Labor. There's right. a ruling about kind of fees for retirement accounts. So I'm just trying to explain all the yep, complicated yep. stuff you're, you're doing, trying to distill it down. Um, so when we think about this, what is the advantage? I think you kind of alluded to it, but using a variable annuity structure versus just buying an off-the-shelf mutual fund or an exchange-traded fund. So we see the, I guess, the main advantage of the variable annuity that provides, you know, guaranteed income, again, is a way for individuals to have a solution to fund their retirement. And I think the key focus is that, and they can have an income stream guaranteed in life and retirement. Essentially, you can create your own kind of personal defined benefit plan. As individuals have pensions that are kind of going away, everyone's kind of moved to this defined contribution model where they're saving their 401k or drawing on Social Security. Many individuals have not saved enough for retirement or cannot be confident that they'll have enough money throughout their retirement. So I think this is just that this product is really meant to address those issues. There's also a tax deferral advantage. So, you know, we, we do have some products that are what we refer to as investment only variable annuities. So these are variable annuities that don't have some of the guarantees on them for lifetime income and they're really just about the tax deferral option. So for you know the, the clear advantage there over a mutual fund or an ETF and a tax portfolio is that you also have tax deferral on those. Right. Uh, so when assets. those cap gains or income right. and things pay out, they get reinvested back reinvested, in, but you pay taxes on the back pay, end. Yeah, right? pay taxes at the end when you withdraw. And for compliance reasons, we're not giving out any tax advice, you know, all the blanket statements there. And if you saw me try to do my taxes in Excel, you probably wouldn't want my advice anyway. Um, so let's talk about what can people get here. So it's a way of investing in markets. Is this just like a large cap equity, like an S&P 500? What type of underlying investments can people make in these structures, these annuity structures? Right. So for at Jackson National, we have 162 different sub-account options available uh, within our variable annuity platform. We don't have to go through all of them. Right. So it really, some- really kind of runs the gamut, pretty much anything you would expect to see in your kind of typical open-end fund universe. We have a lot of those asset classes and strategies available within our platform. That's a a multitude of strategies. What's the process for determining if you want to expand the universal strategies? Let's say you mentioned strategic beta earlier, which in its current form is somewhat recent development. How did you make that decision to add that type of product into your platform. Yeah, so in terms of product developments, we work very closely with our team on the distribution side at Jackson. So we kind of look to get ideas, you know, funneled through um, our wholesalers and our people on the distribution side of what quests they're hearing in the field or what they're hearing that advisors are looking for in terms of investment solutions for their clients. But we'll also come up with our ideas for what we think could be attractive investment solutions for clients through what we think, you know, our research on our online investment strategies or, you know, what we personally would want to invest in. So very much it's a collaborative process of, you know, trying to identify things that we think can work well for clients and also, you know, serve a specific need or fit. I'd say some trends that we've been seeing recently for, you know, is within the the passive and strategic beta side. And I think some of that has come through requests from advisors, what, again, trends we're seeing in the industry. We wanted to make sure we had a very robust lineup of 
passive investment offerings, which we do have. So we have expanded our products set there a little bit in recent years. And then you know, strategic beta is one just as the number of options and have evolved there. We're taking a very close look at and trying to identify what we think are some compelling options that really can provide investors with a more systematic investment strategy that maybe perhaps is a little bit lower cost relative to your pure active investment strategies. Yeah. So the strategic beta, I think uh, I kind of get it from your background. I, I think that's a Morningstar type of phrase, right? Right. Um, yep. And you worked there for what, about 13 years or yeah, so? Yeah, I was right? at Morningstar for 13 yeah. years. So. Yeah. So this is what probably colloquially we refer to as smart beta or kind of these systematic type of strategies too, right? Yeah, that's, right. That's Correct. kind of the yep. other, other phrase. So cryptocurrencies. You know, you're in the insurance business. How's that going in, in launching a, a variable annuity on a cryptocurrency? So this is an example of perhaps if we got feedback or advisors wanting a Bitcoin ETF, we would probably respond no to that. So we're not going to, you know, always just kind of chase the, the latest fad or, or anything like that. So we're not, you know, doing anything in, in that space right now. So. Okay, I just thought it was on CNBC every day. I it figured, is, you know, yeah. maybe your product so. lab was like cooking up a new idea. Not right now, so. Okay, but you reserve the right to do so if need be. We'll see, but uh, I probably share in, uh, you know, listening to the Just Markets podcast yesterday with Jeffrey Gunlock, some of his observations on Bitcoin. And again, it's really not something that I consider, you know, investment opportunity right now because there's no way to understand how to value it or what the fundamental value of that is based on. So it's hard for me to justify an investment strategy. Yeah. I'll stop you there before we get too much hate mail about yeah, sure uh, criticizing the, the cryptos again. But it is a little tough to create a valuation framework except to say that it's got value. Sam and I were talking about this on our kind of kickoff on the podcast talking about the markets and just saying that, you know, it's, it's the same thing can be kind of held for gold, right? Gold, the only difference between gold and a crypto is that it has a longer track record of people believing in it. Mm-hmm. And then you know, it starts to really break down the idea that ultimately the paper money in your pocket too is the same kind of thing, right? It's not really backed by anything except someone's guarantee. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no guarantee that I'll stay there forever. So before I go off in the deep end and lose everybody too here, you, you talked about the trends in strategic bait and the, and the likes. Uh, where do you see the insurance business going? And um, as we go forward, you guys have always had a lot of success at Jackson, you know, in terms of asset growth and delivering more products. Where do you see that business going? Is it just kind of proliferating the landscape and, and really spanning everything that the mutual fund and ETF industry is doing? Or do you think there's there's ways that the insurance business is kind of pioneering those things? Well, I think, Jackson, we've been pretty innovative already in terms of you know product development, whether it's underlying investment strategies or you know, coming out with an investment-only variable annuity to now kind of focusing on new products for fee-based advisors. So I think we have a lot of the bases covered in terms of underlying investment strategies and what's available I think the key focus going forward is going to be this transition to the fee-based business. And when you look at you know the advisors and their use of variable annuities, I think there's a huge potential market out there of financial advisors uh, on the fee-based side that haven't really uh, utilized variable annuities with their clients, perhaps because in the past that hasn't been the right product with the right pricing, et cetera, to serve their needs. But when you think about really what, what their clients need, those saving for retirement, the attributes of the variable annuities, it probably makes a lot of sense to, for a lot of these advisors to consider it. So um, I think you know, looking forward for the variable annuity market, it's this um, potential expansion into you know, a potentially new avenue with fee-based advisors. Yeah. So 
let's get into the more interesting stuff. You know, obviously, it's very interesting, the product, but I've interacted with your colleagues a bit, and uh, they, they've given us some, a little bit of insight that, that you're a baseball fan. Right? A little bit. Yeah, here at the Sherman Show. We, li- we like to talk about baseball a little bit. Yeah. So uh, what team would that be? Uh, New York Yankees. We're yeah. growing up on Long Island, so yeah. grew up a diehard Yankees fan. And your favorite player? Current or historic? Well, you can, you can give me both. Okay, well, growing up, my, my idol was Don Mangley, who's the okay. first baseman of the Yankees, and that transformed into, you know. I think of him as Mr. Mustache, too. Yeah, yeah, great, great, great stash going there. But then uh, Derek Jeter, of course, as a, as a Yankee fan, you kind of had to love Jeets. But uh, more recently, I think, you know, Aaron Judge is going to be probably maybe the next superstar here. Yeah, he looks pretty legit. Didn't you guys just sign someone that's kind of good, too? Uh, Stanton, yeah. It wasn't a bad pickup. Not a bad, not a bad, spoken only like a Yankees fan. (laughs) Not a bad pickup, probably one of the best home run hitters in the game today, right? Yeah, should it help the line up there? (laughs) Yeah, okay. So another thing that people around the office have told me that you go, you have this moniker out there that you're the top cop. Uh Uh-oh. It doesn't sound very good, you know, coming in here that uh, you're going to bust people, but what would the top cop refer to? So that was, uh, yeah, for a CityWire publication did a a little feature where, you know, we uh, talked about what we're doing at Jackson and the proof process and yeah i guess the cover they did and kind of came up with this top cop thing so uh well, but why the top cop i mean what uh, are you policing the industry i don't think so i mean i think they were just kind of that was a theme they took from from the interview and i guess some of the let's say due diligence we do on our online managers and you know when we you know again see reasons to move on and fire a manager and kind of dig into the you know details of what's going on it's probably where that came from do you open your due diligence meetings with like Miranda rights no, or no, something? No, I think we're, no, no, we're trying to not be too intimidating, but we're tough, but fair. So, okay, good. You know, going forward, you know, we've been talking about the future and things and we saw the industry. So what's next for Bill Harding? You know, what, what do you see yourself doing in this industry? And you guys have been pioneers, you know, Jackson's had phenomenal growth. You being the CIO there. What's next for you? Oh, well, I probably haven't thought too far ahead. I just, uh, we stay busy pretty much at Jackson with a lot of what we're working on currently. And, you know, we talked primarily today about kind of the manager research, but another good portion of my job is the asset allocation work we do and managing allocation portfolios. So I think stay busy enough, just kind of thinking about the markets, thinking about right now, you know, how we want to be positioned, you know, where we see opportunities and where we don't. So just trying to get better every day as an investor and just trying to to learn and while at the same time you know I think again trying to understand you know some of the other areas of the of the markets and investment landscape that are coming up like you know again we've talked about strategic beta but just trying to make sure we have a robust platform of great investment solutions and can deliver you know good results for our clients. So uh, if I can, without giving all the intellectual property away at Jackson, what does that asset allocation framework look like as we go into 2018? Going into 2018, well, we're probably uh, a little bit skewing towards neutral, I think, uh, just given where valuations are across asset classes, we don't really see any screaming buys out there. And a lot of what we do in terms of understanding, the, looking at the fundamentals, looking at the relative valuations of asset classes to historical averages, et cetera. Some shifts that we made on the margins is we have moved uh, over the last six months a little bit more into developed international and emerging market equities, primarily from a reduction in U.S. equity exposure. And that was kind of on the basis of 
relative valuations being a little bit more attractive outside the U.S. We have taken down also some of our high-yield bond exposure in the U.S. We just getting where spreads are right now, very tight by historic standards, don't have a lot more room for the capital appreciation there. Some of that money moved into its emerging market debt, which we think are getting relatively a little bit more attractive on a valuation basis than high-yield bonds. So those are probably some of our bigger shifts that we made recently. Yeah, I think EM sovereigns is one of the few sectors of the market right now in emerging market debt, I'm talking about, where we haven't set a post-crisis tight. So at least from that perspective, we're starting to get post-crisis tights. And, you know, like if we talk about the bullish case, as always, you can always hit pre-crisis tights. But uh, what I like to remind people is the reference assets treasuries were a lot higher pre-crisis. Uh, when we hit those tights, and therefore the all-in yield was a lot better. So with that, Sam, do you got anything else uh, over here that you want to talk to Bill about? I think it's time for a little Sherman Says. I don't know what you think. Uh, Bill, you ready for this? I think so. Okay, so Sam, why don't you give him the rules and let our listeners play along at home? That <laughs> sounds good. So, Bill, what we're going to do is I'm going to utter a term and... With that, I would like a response. I try to say, I, I like to say that it should be a one-word response, but being on the receiving end now a couple times of the Sherman Says game, I know that's pretty tough, and I don't like it myself. So if you could just give a, a response to the term that I say, and we alternate. I'll start out with Jeff Sherman and then move over to you and then alternate from there on. So he's saying, effectively what he's saying is he's trying to make it easier on you. I'm going to try because... to stick with the one word, though, see if I can do it. I think I'm trying to make it easier on myself. Should I be on the receiving end again? So He we'll failed f- miserably the last time he did it as well. I don't think he had one response that was one word. So All right, kick us off, Sam. Let's All right, take it home. we'll start off with uh, Mr. Sherman with Euro. Up. Mr. Harding, gold. Hedge. Global GDP. Uh, it's f- fair. It's uh, it's it's good. It's positive. It's just I don't know if it's improving or accelerating, but at least it's fair. So that's there's a good one word answer, right? Yeah, that's pretty good. I just heard one word. So, U.S. GDP improving. Liquidity. Uh, it's decent. Active versus passive. Both. Derek Jeter. El Capitan. Barry Bonds. Steroids. Oh, come on, after I gave you El Capitan. <laughs> Twenty eighteen. Uh, Commodities. Twenty eighteen. Diversification. Variable annuities. Uh, intriguing. Commodities. A buy. I feel like he's just repeating things we've said. You know, I don't think he's even trying here today. Buffalo Bills. Unfortunate. But but was improving. Improving. Chicago. Blackhawks. Lasagna. Cheese. Trump. That's challenging. <laughs> I was thinking cheese again. <laughs> I thought he was going to make me say it again. Hair. I'll change it to hair. Public speaking. Comfortable. CityWire top cop photo shoot. <laughs> Cheesy. <laughs> Deep dish or thin? Oh, thin and crispy. Deep dish or thin? Thin but not crispy. Foldable. Foldable. Yeah. Ah, so you're not from Chicago then? No, New York. <laughs> man, long yeah, that's all right. Definitely. <laughs> Home of the water, right? Yeah. And that wraps up this portion of Sherman Says. All right. Well, thanks, Bill, for coming. We really appreciate your insights in the variable annuity business. Thanks for taking the time to come chat with us today. As always, we welcome your feedback out there. Uh, you can come direct to us at shermanshow at doubleline.com and send in your feedback, good, bad, and indifferent. And we're still waiting for our first email to the address, so just making sure it works. So again, shermanshow at doubleline.com. Uh, you can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, and wherever the other podcasts are hosted. Uh, and also at DoubleLine.com. Again, feedback, hit us up at ShermanShow at DoubleLine.com. Thanks again.
The audio presentation represents DoubleLine's intellectual property. No portion of this presentation may be published, reproduced, transmitted, or rebroadcast in any media in any form without the expressed written permission of DoubleLine. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. To receive permission from DoubleLine, please contact media at DoubleLine.com. Neither DoubleLine nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability therefore, including and respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage is expressly disclaimed. DoubleLine is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice in this podcast. The receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by any DoubleLine entity or individual to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any DoubleLine entity. The portfolio risk management process includes an effort to monitor and manage risk, but does not imply low risk. Copyright 2018, DoubleLine Capital.